Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Fitzgerald got it right. The rich are different, even in the ways they commit crimes. Law and order phrases are shouted from the rooftops with respect to street crime as small-time criminals are abused by law enforcement and often overcharged. The reality is that crimes of much bigger significance and many more victims are committed every day in and from boardrooms. While anger is still palpable in many places over those executives not charged for their role in the 2008-2009 financial meltdown, many smaller but similar white-collar crimes have been committed with no oversight, no punishment, and not even any more anger. Has high-end white-collar crime simply become an acceptable form of doing business? Has it become the collateral damage of capitalism that we are willing to accept? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Jennifer Taub. Jennifer Taub was the Bruce W. Nichols Visiting Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School and is a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. She's a longtime legal scholar and advocate promoting transparency and opposing white-collar corruption. And she's the author of the new book, Big Dirty Money, the shocking injustice and unseen cost of white-collar crime. Jennifer Taub, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, white-collar crime is nothing new. It's been with us for a long time. Are we seeing more of it nowadays? We are definitely seeing a rise in white-collar crime and a tremendous drop-off in enforcement. But it's really hard to know exactly what the numbers are because there's nobody that officially measures white-collar crime and all of its forms and flavors. Have we gone through periods where there has been a crackdown, where we've had stronger enforcement mechanism, a stronger SEC, stronger institutions that are looking at white-collar crime and have cracked down on it? Have we gone through those periods historically? We have. I mean, we kind of go in waves of these in particular, corporate crime waves and crackdowns. And just to offer a few examples, after the savings and loan debacle of the 1980s, um, more than 1,000 bankers were prosecuted and put in jail. And similarly, in the early 2000s with the Enron um, scandal and other accounting fraud matters, there was actually a task force put together, the Department of Justice, to hold folks accountable. And a familiar name um, associated with that task force, the guy who headed it up, was no other than Andrew Weissman. And, yeah, and they were successful at that. Um, that pattern kind of broke down after the um, toxic mortgage-backed financial crisis of 2008 when um, the folks in charge of enforcement at the Justice Department appeared to have dropped the ball. And if we examine exactly when that tipping point happened, what were the factors that that you analyze were the reasons why that ball was dropped? I think, you know, I was not obviously a fly on the wall. I did not work at the Justice Department. But when I examined the statements made by those in charge who had the decision whether to pursue cases, I am left with this sad realization that they just didn't want to. Um, and I can one of the, I think, most damning pieces of evidence that points in that direction is that Lanny Brewer, who was at the Department of Justice in charge of enforcement, it would have been his um, under on his watch, was interviewed um, by Frontline in his major television news appearance. And the host asked Brewer, why were no high level bankers 
prosecuted at all, let alone put in jail. And the reason, rather the excuse he gave, you know, made our hair go on fire because what he said, he told the host, we didn't prosecute these bankers because it would have been very difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that anyone relied on their fraudulent statements about these toxic mortgage-linked securities. But here's the problem with that. There is no requirement for the government in a criminal case to prove reliance. There was an immediate outcry from lawyers who understood this. For example, um, Justice Jed Rakoff, who's a federal judge in the Southern District of New York, which is in Manhattan, um, wrote a, a scathing piece in the New York Review of Books. And when I, when I look back on it, you know, if you think about it this way, this is the guy in charge, and he, if he didn't have experience, which he didn't in, you know, in criminal law enforcement, if he actually had a priority, if he, if he was talking to his, his, his reports, you know, people who reported to him, and he said, you know, I wish we could pursue these cases, but there's this tough element it's hard for us to prove. Don't you think they would have said to him, hey, boss, that's not an obstacle. You know, he's not a stupid man. So, you know, if you're ignorant about something so critical to a charging decision, it sounds like there was never even a plan to hold them accountable. Is there some nexus somewhere in all this as a result of of your research, you're looking into this, between the amount of money that goes into politics these days and the way in which some of these white-collar criminals have been treated? I think that is absolutely true. I think there's a relationship between dirty money and politics that affects who is elected. It affects what people will do once they're in office. Um, And it affects uh, who ends up, you know, who ends up being prosecuted. Unfortunately, it seems there are those relationships. The way I think of it, you may have heard this truism. People often say man created God in his own image. Um, you know, man created law in his own image, and those who have the power to change the law have massaged it in a way that makes a lot of the cheating that they do um, either perfectly legal or hard to prove um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the system is kind of kind of working um, for those who want to use cheating to gain and maintain wealth and power. There is also the aspect of it where where white-collar crime has become almost a partisan political issue. It is true. I mean, there are, you know, there are people from all parties, you know, um, including the main parties, Democrats and Republicans in office, who we find facing uh, public corruption charges often and being investigated for insider trading after going to a private briefing about the coronavirus. It is for sure um, not limited to one party or another. But I do want to be clear about this. Toward the end of the Obama administration, there was a return to, I think, a large part due to public outrage, a return, or I wouldn't say a return, but a, um, a update to the prosecution guidelines for corporations. And it was when, uh, it was when um, Sally Yates was the deputy attorney general, she updated those guidelines to make sure that there was an emphasis on holding individuals, high-level executives at corporations accountable, not just to settle these charges with these deferred prosecution agreements and let let the folks at the top walk away with a slap on the wrist or maybe even a kiss on the cheek and a bonus, but to hold them accountable. And she put that in place shortly before 
Trump came into office, we know that she was fired because she refused to enforce the Muslim um, travel ban. And now when Rod Rosenstein took that role as deputy attorney general, he gave a speech in which he made clear um, to lawyers who represent corporations um, and other are in the uh, criminal defense bar that they were going to kind of ease up on individual accountability. What are what are prosecutors afraid of in bringing some of these charges? There, there's almost the sense that there's there's a fear that's inherent in in bringing these charges. It's such a great question. A friend of mine wrote a wonderful book um, a couple years ago on um, on this topic. Jesse Eisinger, the Chicken Chip Club, and you know he, he has one theory, which I think is in part true that there's been um, a loss of kind of a prosecutorial muscle as a result of something that started happening in the 1990s, which was this, instead of, if, if there was enough evidence to convict a corporation um, for, for a crime, there was sometimes a settlement. It was called a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement, where you would get the corporation to agree not to break the law again, and they would pay a fine. And that could be open and shut. It could be checked off as a win for the Department of Justice, and it wouldn't require a long, expensive, time-consuming legal battle on either side. And that was a rare thing in the 90s. And then it suddenly, by the early 2000s, you know, th- those kinds of agreements spiked, and there are so many of them. Um, so in part, I think there's lots of um, training on how to actually run and investigate a complicated trial. I think also when we had... Um, after Arthur Anderson was convicted due to for obstruction of justice, and it's con, uh, connected with um, document shredding related to Enron, that conviction was overturned at the Supreme Court. And I think there was some fear um, at that time, um, even though the statute was amended, so there wasn't a loophole. I think that people lost their will and didn't want to be embarrassed, and they're afraid of not having a winning streak. Um, so all these factors come into play. And I think a final piece is the revolving door where, you know, people who tend to be um, assistant U.S. attorneys who are put in charge of cases don't want to stay doing that forever. And some of them want to then leave and go to a corporate law firm. And with the rise of white collar criminal settlements, they found themselves across the table with powerful people who are partners at law firms they'd like to join. And they just revolve out of the Justice Department into a cushy million dollar plus a year job. So, you know, it's a, it's an audition and uh, they often pass muster and get a job, you know, at the other, on the other side of the table. In some of these cases, couldn't shareholder activism have made more of a difference and why haven't we seen more of that? So there's been a lot of shareholder activism in the form of getting um, statements, getting um questions put on the annual um, proxy ballot, this thing that goes out for the annual meeting. But those kinds of resolutions asking corporations to take certain steps in the area of environmental harm or social justice or governance of the corporation or say on pay, those kinds of of statements are um, fought. And even if they get voted on, it's just a recommendation. They're not always very binding. Um, and, you know, sometimes shareholders find themselves in a position where they are, uh, where there might be a class action settlement for securities fraud. But some of the biggest shareholders, the big institutional investors like mutual funds, sometimes take a pass and don't really want to participate because they kind of have, um, they kind of have conflicted relationships with large corporations because they want to run their 
401k plans. So there's a lot of mutually assured immunity happening here. To what extent does the fact that so many of these cases aren't prosecuted create an environment that really makes potential white-collar criminals feel safer? Absolutely. Um, You know, incentives drive a lot of human behavior. And to the extent that your upside is a big bonus, millions of dollars, people think you're a smart executive, and your downside is Maybe you're forced into retirement with a $134 million golden parachute. Um, Why wouldn't people who have a more flexible moral compass um, and think they're better than others just do that if there's no consequence? And I have to say, we all suffer directly or indirectly from this. And to me, to me, I firmly believe that Donald Trump himself, if he had been held accountable for all of his shenanigans and fraudulent behavior from before he ran for office, that he would have served time in federal prison and not the Oval Office. Has the situation in the current political and economic environment, has it gotten worse? And have we crossed some kind of Rubicon that's going to make it more difficult, even in the future, to turn this back to more regular kinds of prosecution of these crimes? We have a big opportunity ahead, similar to what happened after Watergate, when the general public was just so disgusted by the corruption and the, you know, the lawlessness and diminishing the office of the president and the office of the uh, you know, U.S. attorney um, and um, attorney general, I'm sorry. And that backlash resulted in tremendously positive reforms. I think we might have that opportunity soon. So I remain hopeful because the other, if we don't fix this, we are going to be sliding from oligarchy into kleptocracy and we'll end up, you know, being like one of these quasi failed states where we have these kind of brutal authoritarian kleptocrats and their oligarch cronies um, playing by one set of the rules and the rest of us by the others. One of the things that that also seems relevant to all of this is how much is taking place that we don't know about. Many of the stories that you write about, many of the cases, things like Wells Fargo, for example, that have just been sort of covered up and, and not really dealt with, and certainly some of the things that happened in 2008, 2009, these are the things that we know about. The, the amount of stuff that's going on that we don't know about could could be staggering. Well, that's, I mean, that's always the case. And the the problem with once you see, um, let's say, problems in the pharmaceutical industry, even if it's a bad Apple situation, or you see a um, government official on the take, if they're not held accountable, and if we see this on and on, it undermines our trust in the businesses that we need to trust for products and services that improve our lives and make us safe and healthy. And that, that um, you know, your comment about what could be there is the kind of thing that turns people into anti-vaxxers. They don't trust big pharma, unfortunately, and that's why we have a resurgence of measles epidemics and children not getting inoculated. And we're facing a similar thing now where we surely do need to get as many people vaccinated once there is a safe and effective vaccine for covid And yet people are doubting whether they can trust any vaccine that Donald Trump put forward because he seems to be, you know, um, silencing those 
who are telling the truth and just promising things that don't seem possible. That's not a good situation to be in. One of the other things that you write about is even those that are prosecuted, even those that are convicted, serve very little time, and it's really a kind of light slap on the wrist. This is very true. This kind of double standard um, in our criminal justice system begins not, not just when a crime is committed, but follows all the way through from whether a decision to prosecute it, you know, report it or prosecute it, or what a jury um, sees or, um, in, in the defendant or a judge in sentencing. So even if you know, you, all these second chances and chances for forgiveness along the way, there are times when white collar criminals are incarcerated and they don't go to the regular prisons. They really do go to a club fed. Those are, that's, not, that's not a myth. And when, when I teach... Um, when I teach my white collar crime classes, I often start out by giving students a tour of some of these club fed facilities. And, you know, in many of them, if you go to the website for any uh, minimum security federal prison, there's like a welcome brochure. It's like you're sending your kid off to camp or to college. And in it, they talk about, I'm serious. It's like, you'll read this and it'll be like, you can play a variety of sports, including volleyball and bocce, participate in crafts, including crochet and drawing. And there's even a very um, lengthy commissary list where you can order uh, to your room, I guess, sell sour gummy worms, clip-on sunglasses, and even SPF 30 sunblock. You know, you know, this is what's happening. Are we seeing any state prosecution of some of these cases? And is there a difference in what we're seeing with respect to state versus federal prosecution? Um, so that's a good point. States also, often the, the district attorneys, let me, let me give you the example of New York. Um, jurisdiction is a little bit unusual where we have an attorney general of New York who has jurisdiction um, over only some criminal offenses and needs to get um, extra authority, let's say, from the governor. But then you have the district attorneys in New York, such as a district attorney for um, New York County, who is size aunt, or a district attorney for Westchester County. Um, for example, the incoming person elected um, she has no opponent, and the general is Mimi Roca. It's the district attorneys often who, because they have full authority to enforce the criminal law of the state in which they reside in their county, they tend to, um, they have power too, but they are not as well funded often. And so they too um, sometimes go after the low-hanging fruit, the people who um, are with less power and status in society who are perceived to not have as um sophisticated or expensive legal counsel to fight them. So it becomes an issue also at the local and state and state level. There's also this mythology out there that, that you also write about in Big Dirty Money that somehow these white-collar crimes are victimless, and that's not the case at all. They're not victimless at all. I mean, there are many direct and indirect victims. And, you know, the victims can be the person heading into retirement who has their entire retirement savings siphoned away by some kind of con artist. Um, the victims include a small, an owner of a small business who can't compete with someone who's swindling others, you know, pretending to offer better products and services at lower prices, but then never even delivering. Um, it, it, the, the victims include people who died and family members of those who died of opioid overdoses while 
um, people like the Sacklers who own Purdue Pharma um, peddled this dangerous drug, even after the company pleaded guilty to uh, a felony back in 2006 related to mislabeling it so that doctors pushed it on people who should never, never have um, been prescribed. Is there a difference in, in how prosecutors perceive corporate wrongdoing versus individual wrongdoing? Talk a little about that. Sure. So I have never myself been a federal prosecutor, but I can take a look um, at the conversations I've had with them and also look at the research and the prosecution guidelines. But there is, um, you know, there, there now is in the prosecution guidelines the mandate to try to hold individuals who are responsible accountable. But um, I think the way it often works, based on research from Brandon Garrett of Duke University School of Law, he's done a lot of research on these deferred prosecution and non-prosecution agreements, it's, it's around only 30% of the time, even when, even when the corporation is, so to speak, dead to rights, even when they are going to be able to prove the corporation committed a crime and the corporation settles as one of those DPAs or NPAs, it's like only 30% of the time that any executives, any individuals are actually charged. So how can that be? I know corporations have certain personhood rights under the Constitution and under federal law, but they don't actually have bodies, hands, arms, and brains that actually go ahead and commit these offenses. It should be unacceptable. And I think it's really easy to you know, do that. Some, the only times, not only times, the, the rare times when the CEO themselves, the chief executive, is charged is when they've already been pushed out by the company, often a smaller firm. But when there's a current CEO in place who was the person in charge when the corporation committed the crimes, they throw the corporation under the bus, make the corporation pay out the fine that hurts the shareholders, and, you know, they just go on their merry way. To what extent do regulatory agencies play a role in this? We've talked about it from the point of view of prosecutors, but regulatory agencies like the SEC, what role do they play, and, and, and how has their position evolved on these things? So some um, federal um, regulatory agencies um, or divisions of the executive branch have criminal enforcement authority and some don't. So when you look at the Securities and Exchange Commission, it does not have the power to prosecute anyone or any business under the criminal law. It has the power to enter into civil settlements, to charge through their administrative um, law courts, to bring cases in federal court, but it, again, only has civil authority. Um, so that, that limits what they can do. But what they also can do is they can make criminal referrals and work closely after they've done the research with the Department of Justice to pass those cases onto them. But we have seen, you know, at the SEC, you may, you may remember that there was a whistleblower who was trying to, ro ro trying to blow the whistle on Bernard Madoff, and he was completely ignored. Two cases that get high profile, Madoff being an example, Mike Milken back in the day, did those high profile cases have any impact in terms of being any kind of deterrence? Well, let's take Madoff. I mean, Madoff was an easy case to bring because he can, as soon as the financial crisis hit and he realized he couldn't keep up this Ponzi scheme, he confessed to his sons. His sons turned him in, and that was that. So there was no, there was not a need to 
research a case. There was no need to sort through um, the records and try to prove things. There was no problem with showing intent. They had people who had flipped, you know, the kids flipped on the dad. Um, and I, you know, I don't know that that is um, much of a deterrent. There have been Ponzi schemers, you know, after Madoff. And I think with sometimes with people who are running a Ponzi scheme, it's not just a mentality that they're cheating. I think a lot of them are deluded and believing one day they'll get ahead, one day it will work. And then they realize at some point that it's going to end at some point. And when they get caught, they'll go to jail. So they just drag it out as long as they can and live as long of a life as they can um, in the lap of luxury until they get caught. I don't see that being much of a deterrent for someone who um, has those delusions of grandeur and sociopathy. Um, but when you look at Michael Milken, you know, he always, he was, um, after he got out of prison, he still was and continues to be celebrated as a financial genius. Um, he is, is very well respected among his peers. Um, and he asked, you know, I think there's some who claim um, that he was, you know, victimized, that it wasn't fair, but he had the most talented lawyers um, defending him. And he fought the charges. And as you may remember, just before Valentine's Day this year, Donald Trump um, pardoned him. What about in situations, Wells Fargo is, is a case in point here, where it's something that's in the culture of the organization, an individual takes the blame, and then they're sent off with a multi, multi-million dollar golden parachute? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the common story, the story of um, John Stump, who was the CEO of Wells Fargo during the more than decade when the company, the employees, opened over 3.5 million fraudulent accounts without customers' consent, things like you know, bank accounts, like savings accounts, checking accounts, credit cards, and people were slammed with overdraft fees. It was even separately things where cars were repossessed um, because of insurance that the company, that the um, that the Wells Fargo bank employees um, made them um, buy that they did not need, and you know it goes on and on. And um, when he was um, when he was when the news came to light um, in 2016, there were two congressional hearings, um, and it was kind of a bipartisan attack on him. It was clear that he was going to be pushed out by the board of directors, and he was. But he got a $134 million exit payment. Um, and then even more news came out um, and, you know, about, the, uh, um, about what happened on his watch. And so finally, this year in 2020, the head regulator for that bank, the Office of the Control of the Currency, um, did this kind of, you know, the horse is already out of the barn move of banning him for life um, you know, from the industry and giving him a small fee. You know, to us, it might be large in the millions of dollars, but it didn't make much of a dent when you have over 100 million. Um, and then he, the guy had already retired. He's 66 years old. I mean, it's kind of, you know, why even bother? I don't see the deterrent value. The book is Big Dirty Money. Jennifer Taub, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much.